Hello, and welcome to the All Saints Podcast. I'm Hugh Cole. Today, we'll continue our series, Calling, by speaking with All Saints Associate Rector, B.J. Burriker. Father B.J. has a long relationship with the Christian faith and brought a deep and learned understanding of religion to our conversation. Prior to coming to All Saints, Father B.J. was a church youth director and later a teacher at Catholic University. B.J. also possesses two master's degrees, one in math and the other in divinity, which I dare say is not a combination you see too often. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Father BJ, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, absolutely. It's great to be here, Hugh. In reading a, a bit about you, I, I know you've been involved in the church and the church life for a while I, since you were young. Um, I'm curious, though, at what point in your life did the priesthood sort of become a, an option or a, a possibility or a thought for you? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So, um, as you said, I've been involved in the church and in Christianity pretty much my entire life. Um, My mother is a very strong and faithful believer. Um, And although my dad is agnostic, um, he's always encouraged my sister and I in our walk with Christ and in following our our faith and our consciences. So I'd grown up in the church. um, And when I moved to North Carolina, when I was 16, I got involved in a church down there that was very mission-centered. So they did a lot of mission trips for the youth group. They taught us at 16, 17, 18 how to do ministry. And it was an absolute blast um, to teach vacation Bible schools, to do service projects, those type of things. It was really just neat to see God work in us and through us and all that. I didn't feel a calling then, though. Um, And as I went to NC State to study math, my goal was to be a math professor. But as I started my time there, the church that I had grown up in in youth group hired me to do youth ministry as an intern during the summers. So I did that for four years and was now leading the mission trips and the Bible studies and the service projects that I'd been a part of beforehand. And as I was getting close to finishing my time at NC State, the church had offered to hire me on as a full-time youth minister and to put me through seminary. And at that time, I was still wrestling with um, wanting to be a math professor. Um, I was entertaining possibilities of joining the military. And now I had this third option of joining the church. And it was kind of at that time that I really started to feel this nudge of getting involved in full-time ministry. Uh, And I spent a large amount of time in both prayer and with talking to people I consider very wise, especially my mother, um, on what I should do. And it seemed like as many people as I would talk to, that's how many opinions I got, um, just a variety of different uh, ways. Um, And I remember praying really hard, and finally it came down to it and said, well, I'm putting out my application. If I get into the University of Illinois for the PhD program, I'll take that as a sign that that's God's call, that that's where I should go. And then one night, um, I remember being at my pastor's house and talking to him, and I said, you know what? I, I, I know I said that, but I really feel God's call to the ministry. So that night, on Saturday night, I told him, I'll commit, I'll come to work here at the church, you'll put me through seminary, this is clearly God's call. Sunday morning, as part of his sermon, he went through the history of our church and ended by talking about, and just last night, I got this commitment from our new youth director. The following day on Monday, I got my acceptance letter to the University of Illinois. Um, And it really was kind of, rather than making me doubt my call, it was affirming of, I could have gone in that direction, but now I was doing God's will for me. All of this happened in a Presbyterian church. Um, So I would have been a Presbyterian pastor. I went to a Presbyterian seminary um, and learned an awful lot there at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. Um, Had a great time, met some wonderful people. 
and coming out of it, I've, I had fallen in love with the academic study of sacred scripture. And so I wanted to pursue a PhD in biblical studies, which, I don't know, a decade later, I finally finished at the Catholic University of America. And as I was starting to finish up there, these doubts about what I was doing and this call back towards ministry really started to bubble up. Uh, Father Ed Kelleher um, had mentioned several times how much he'd love for me to just take a weekend, go off, find a bishop, and come back with a collar and start working here at All Saints. And I had other people that had mentioned that. And so I did the same thing again of, well, God, I wanted to be a professor in biblical studies. I have this new career in academia, but I'm starting to feel this call back into ministry. What am I supposed to do? Um, and again, it was like the same thing happened all over again. As many people as I would talk to, it seemed like I had that many different opinions. Um, and then I want to say about six months to a year of praying, asking for advice. I remember talking to one of my best friends who'd been the best man at my wedding. Um, he's the godfather of all my kids. And, and he knows literally the good, bad, and the ugly of BJ Burricker. And I said, what do you think about this, man? He goes, you've been called to this for years. This is exactly what you need to be doing. And it seemed like at that point, everybody's opinion started to change and be like, you know what, this does seem to be your calling. And so I would say that was the case. And I started making um, conversations with the bishops and the powers that be, I want to say in 2016, 2017, and led me to where I am now. Yeah. So it's interesting because you, as you tell that story, you talk about uh, feelings and nudges and signs and things bubbling up inside you, but you also clearly both through your scholarly pursuits and just from knowing you for the time that I've known you are also a very thoughtful, cerebral type of person. Is there conflict there or do you have trouble sometimes knowing which one to rely on or are you pulled in different directions or how does that sort of manifest itself? Um, yes, <laughs> uh, absolutely. I've got uh, conflicts and, you know, a lot of times what I want to do is not necessarily what I, I end up ultimately being called to do. And I think sometimes I personally have the problem of discerning, like, is that my voice? Is that my mom's voice? Is that my friend's voice? Is that Kimberly's or is that God's? Um, and that's part of the reason why I, I've taken so much time in making these really big decisions to talk to people that I see as being very wise, not just in a secular sense, but because of their relationship with God, um, their knowledge of scripture, their involvement in the church, um, and, and taking their advice and their wisdom to heart and really praying through that. Is there a, I mean, I, it's clearly on God's timeline. Is there anything, is there anything that, that you've done to try and recognize that or get comfortable with that? Or is it just doing the best that you can and just waiting for it to happen. Now, one of the things that um, Father Ed had recommended when I, I really started to sit down um, and talk to him about this, and I remember talking to him in the hallway at the church and saying, look, I know you've been joking around about me being ordained, but I am praying about this. I am listening to it. Can we have lunch? And I asked him, like, how do I discern this? Um, and, and what am I supposed to do here? And he recommended that I journal. Um, and sit down, which is not something I enjoy doing at all. I, I, I don't like it. Um, I've tried it a couple of times and it never really took. But this time I was like, you know what, I should try and journal. Um, and at the time I had about an hour long metro ride every day. Um, and so I would take out my journal and five, six minutes every day, just write something down. And it wasn't much, but just kind of how I was feeling, um, sins I was struggling with, prayers that I was having, what I wanted to do, what I felt like God's call in general was for my life. And now asking like, well, what's the specifics? 
and I think in part by doing that, things became clearer in my own mind because then I could see like, you know what? I've been saying I want to be a priest. I haven't said that in the past, but now it seems like that's popped up on several pages. And I remember saying that whether I'm officially ordained as a priest um, or I continue as a lay person, I want the characteristics of a priest. I want to be involved in ministry like a priest. Um, and so I think that, that was one of the ways that was helpful there. The time that you've sort of been in this discernment period, is it still going on? What a great question. Um, I, yes. <laughs> I, I'm, I, and I don't necessarily think that will ever stop. Um, right now, it's very clear to me that I, I'm called to serve as associate rector here at All Saints Church. Um, but I fully suspect at some point God's going to call me elsewhere. Um, certainly at some point he's going to call Ed elsewhere. And that's going to change things for me. So it's always kind of, well, what, what is it that God would have me do? Um, Lord willing, I will never end up as a rector, you know, senior rector of a church or a bishop or anything like that. I don't have any aspirations to that. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, pretty much every day, what, what's my calling? Are there particular people I need to call today? Are there particular aspects of my job I need to focus on today? Are there um, particular texts I need to read about? Are there particular devotional practices I need to incorporate? Um, which is all, you know, minor discernments, um, but constantly discerning God's will, I, I think, is an ongoing process. You've mentioned a number of relationships on in the conversation so far. Um your mother, your your best friend, your best man, uh, God, obviously. Um, let's just talk about a few of those. Um, let's just start, start with the one you mentioned first, your mom. That relationship, how is that? Uh, you've mentioned a little bit of how it informed your calling. How has it, talk a little bit more about that. And then if you would, maybe talk about how that relationship has changed over time as you've gone through this process of discernment. Yeah, so... Um... So when I was growing up, I was both involved in a church, but also went to a Christian school. And part of the things we had to do at the Christian school was memorize stuff from our catechism. Um, and I remember pretty much every day at breakfast, we'd be doing catechism questions. We'd do devotions. She taught me how to pray, um, made sure we were in church every Sunday, and taught us how to read the Bible and that type of stuff. I mean, so I really don't remember a time of not having God, Jesus, the Bible, church being an important part of my life. Um, and she made sure, you know, when I was a teenager that I was going to youth groups and things like that. Um, and certainly over time, as she kind of became mom less and less and really good friend more and more, I've been able to share kind of the things that have been on my heart as I've wrestled with this type of stuff um, and really saying, well, this is what I want to do. And she's got the freedom because she's never going to cease being my mom or my friend. She's got the freedom to basically say, that's a really dumb idea um, and be very blunt and direct and to the point about it. Or to say, you know, there, there might be something to that. Let's pray on that for a little while. Um, or I think that's bad, but I'll pray about it and see if I think, you know, if God's going to change my heart. And so that's been, I mean, that's regular. Um, and that, I mean, that still goes on. I was on the phone with her earlier today and, you know, we're chatting with each other about life and what's going on and that type of thing. And to a certain degree, the relationship has changed, certainly through seminary. She leads a lot of Bible studies and things like that at her church. And every once in a while, she'll call and say, well, this is what I want to say at the study. Is this in line with scripture? Or yeah, this particular translation says this, this other one says that. What does the Greek say? And she'll call me about that. 
And then I'll never forget uh, right after my ordination, as I go through the first blessings um, of all the people lined up, and she's one of the first people I got to bless as a priest. And the next morning when I celebrated my first Eucharist, she was the first person I gave communion to. So there is kind of that relationship of giving some advice back. Her church has gone through some turmoil, being able to say, well, this is what I think, or this is what I would pray about, or the questions I would ask. And so it's become more of a mutual relationship like that. And I think we both look to each other for spiritual advice, guidance, and direction. And you also mentioned your dad. I can I can tell you that I grew up in a similar situation where my mom was very faithful. Uh, we went to church every Sunday, and my father was an atheist. So I had the the op- opportunity to come home from church on some sometimes on Sunday and have my faith questioned not five minutes before I walked in the door, which was always interesting. It was always in a very loving and sometimes mischievous way, but it was always you know little things here and there. Uh, if I can ask, how has your relationship with your dad and and his agnosticism changed over time, or, or has it? Yeah, I, I think my relationship with my dad is quite good. It's not as strong as it is with my mother. Um, and part of that is, I think, the spiritual relationship my mom and I share. But some of it, too, is my dad's a bit of an introvert. Um, so he's perfectly happy to kind of sit and watch TV or to sit back and watch everybody else participate in things. Um, so I'm not frequently on the phone with him nearly as much as I am with my mom. But we've had some really good conversations about stuff, about his faith and what he thinks and why he doesn't fully believe, um, because he truly is agnostic. He's like, I don't see enough proof for the existence of God. I don't see enough proof for non-existence of God. I just don't know. Um, But what's been interesting is when he retired in 95, I believe it was, we moved from the D.C. area down to North Carolina, and my mom got us involved in this church down there. And it was a small church at the time, probably 50, 60 members, and they liked my dad. And so they would invite him to golf outings or over for dinner to grab a beer or whatever it happened to be. And he's somewhat cynical and rather scientific in the way he thinks, and he can be blunt, and they were fine with that. And so as he would challenge them or they would have session meetings, he'd be like, well, what are these super secret meetings you're having about the church? And and the pastor would be like, they're not super secret. You can come. Just you can't talk, you know, because it's not about you. So he would go to that and he was accepted and could ask his questions and get answers. And if it wasn't an appropriate time to give an answer because it was, you know, a Sunday school class or something like that, the pastor would take him out to lunch and they'd have that conversation there. And so I want to say for the past, good grief, 20 years or so, he's missed a handful of uh, Sunday services. And even when my mom's out of town, he still goes to church. He makes the coffee every morning for everybody. So he's known as the coffee guy. He does a lot of woodworking and cabinetry work. So he's built the pulpit, the offering plates, the big cross behind the pulpit, the communion table, and a whole bunch of other things at the church. So, I mean, he's very much involved and he's kind of known as their resident skeptic, but he's loved. And so I think he's softened a lot to it. And there for a while, he would be listening to sermons as he was driving, or he'd listen to like R.C. Sproul and other apologists as he would be driving around and um, stuff like that. So he hasn't fully come around to say, I absolutely believe this. I'd like to to be baptized, but he certainly has softened and it's been good. He was in a bad car accident several years ago and spent quite a bit of time in the hospital and pretty much everybody who visited him were people from the church. I mean, just lots and lots of people from the church would come pray with him, talk to him about Jesus, uh, talk to him about the Bible. You know, Joe, you're lucky to be alive. Have you thought about what happens when you're not alive in this world anymore. Um, And I think those have been good and tough conversations for him to have. 
you mentioned the word proof as you were telling that story. And the first thing that jumped into my mind was the, um, the, the math side of your life. And just, and, and I know that your wife, Kimberly has got a big math streak too. And she's uh, spent a lot of her time uh, in the math world and, and proof obviously is a very fundamental concept or fundamental process in math. But you mentioned it in sort of the the context of faith. How how do the how do those two things and those two sides of yourself uh, manifest themselves and coexist in in you? Yeah, that's interesting. I think some of it is um, one of the tenets of mathematics is you start with a series of axioms of things you kind of have to assume to be true for anything else to make sense. You know, a can't equal not a. You can't really prove that, but nothing in the world makes sense if that's not true. And so you kind of start with these types of things. And I think for me anyway, that's kind of where I start with God, is if I don't assume God, so much just doesn't make sense. The orderliness of the universe, the relationships with people, the whole concept of morality doesn't seem to make sense. You know, why can't I take from you? If there's no ultimate standard, what difference does it make? I hurt your feelings, but what do I care? Um, Now, most people don't live like that, but kind of, you know, at the foundational level, I do think that that's a significant question. So in many ways, I I think that that's where I start. And so I don't see that like faith in science or faith in mathematics or faith in reason are at odds with each other. I take very high value of both. So when I was teaching Old Testament at Catholic University, uh, we would come into this as we would study like Genesis 1 and 2 and talk about, you know, science can tell us how things happen and perhaps historically what started there and how we ended up here and how the chemicals did this and how genetics did that. But it can't tell us why things exist. Um, And it can't tell us like the meaning of life or the purpose of things or the value of human life. We kind of need faith. We need God to give us those types of things. And that's the type of stuff we see in sacred scripture. Um, And that's the type of stuff I hold on to by faith. Because if God has created this entire world, we need to take care of this world. It belongs to him. If God has created humankind in his image, everybody deserves a huge amount of respect and reverence because they bear the image of God. So whether they're somebody who is very well-to-do and successful in their business, whether it's somebody who is homeless um, and struggling to make ends meet, whether it's somebody who's done something horrific um, or is the kindest person in the world, they all deserve a certain amount of respect and reverence because they're made in the image of God, which means I need to follow the commands of Christ and to love them as Christ has loved me. Um, Because certainly in comparison to Christ, I'm not worthy of anything, but he saw the, the worthiness um, and the need for respect for all human life. And I think we need to do the same. I read on the All Saints website that you have a research interest in minor characters of the Old Testament. So I'm going to give you a few names, and I'd love for you to tell me what interests you about the character and what you think we can learn from their story. We're going to do some deep cuts from, from Scripture. And I'll start with a softball for you, and that would be Abner, son of Ner. And you can tell people why that's a softball if you want. Yeah, so that's what I wrote my my PhD dissertation on was Abner. Um, So he was King Saul's chief general. So King Saul, being the first king of ancient Israel, picked Abner to be his chief general. Um, And he does a little bit in 1 Samuel, but not a whole heck of a lot. Then in 2 Samuel, David has now been anointed king, but he has not yet been given rule over the entire nation of Israel. At this time, this nation's starting to split apart, and one of Saul's sons is ruling up north. David has been kind of crowned king down south, and it's a bit divided. 
Abner, at one point, basically, he goes to battle with David's chief general and loses whole-handedly. And then later abdicates over to David's side and basically brings the northern half of Israel over to David's side. And as soon as kind of that treaty has been made, Abner himself then is killed by Joab, David's commander. And that's the end of Joab, uh, Abner's story. Rather tragic story and yet a rather important one because without him doing that, I don't see David in particular being able to rule the whole nation of Israel, and to be seen as this greatest king of Israel. Um, and so it's kind of this, it would be real easy, I think, for David to have despaired in saying, well, I don't have the full rule like God said that I would. And then this minor person is the one who kind of nudges it in the right direction. Um, and so I think for many of us, you know, most of us aren't kings, we're not generals, we're not CEOs, you know, we're not probably well known, and yet God still uses these minor people to do really important big things. How about Miriam? She had a famous brother. Yeah, Moses. Yeah, yeah, Miriam's, again, Miriam's fascinating too. So when um, Pharaoh is trying to kill all the baby boys in, um, in Egypt, Miriam basically saves her little brother's life. Um, puts him, you know, he gets put in a basket. The basket goes down the river. Pharaoh's daughter finds him floating in the Nile, takes him in. And Miriam shows up and says, hey, would you like, you know, basically a wet nurse to take care of, of the Bible and to help him grow up and, and be weaned. And she says, yes. So then Miriam gets to take her own brother back to her own house and have Moses's mother um, raise him for a time uh, beforehand. And then she becomes one of Moses's disciples as they, you know, Moses finally delivers the people out of the land of Egypt and through the Red Sea. And there's some shaky stuff. Um, at some point, she kind of rebels against him a little bit. But before that, she sings just a great song in Exodus 15, um, kind of praising God. It's real short, uh, but praises God for delivering them through the, the Red Sea and out of the land of Egypt. And is there one that, that's one of your favorites? One that was fascinating um, that kind of led me eventually to choosing Abner was uh, uh, reading a book on Bathsheba. So again, going back to the story of David, um, years later, David says he's walking around on the roof of his house at the time when kings should go off to war. So it almost seems like he's bored and looking for something to do. And lo and behold, he can see in a window and there's this beautiful woman bathing. So he pauses and watches for a while and then sends um, his guys to get her, brings her in. She gets pregnant with his child. And eventually, um, in order to kind of have you know, a political scandal that we couldn't possibly see happening today, tries to cover up everything and has uh, her husband murdered and brings her in as one of his wives. And what's interesting about her is I think historically she's gotten a bad rap um, of being a temptress, of trying to bring David in. Um, and in this book by Sarah Koenig, she argues pretty conclusively that that's just not the case, is she's actually a really interesting character who makes really fascinating decisions and develops uh, throughout the, the story to, at the beginning of First Kings, it's her craftiness that helps get King Solomon on the throne and not one of David's other sons. And then from Solomon, we get the wisest king of all time, although his story is a bit tragic in its own right. Um, but Bathsheba is just a really interesting one. And again, for a time where women are not considered to be of much importance within society, Bathsheba ends up having quite a bit of importance in moving the, the history of the nation of Israel forward. That seems to be, or that has to be, one of the major through lines of scripture, which is 
the these grand important people that we read about and we know about and we hear about all the time have dozens and dozens of people behind them or around them that influence their own journeys and their own greatness. No, I think that's right. And I mean, and again, going back, you know, obviously people that have influenced me, I've mentioned my mother, my best friend, and obviously Kimberly, my, my wife is a huge one there. And pretty much with anything that goes on now with, I mean, whether it's a major decision, minor decision, if I haven't talked to her, I've made a mistake. <laughs> um, and so in, in many ways, and what I appreciated through the ordination process is when I met with the commission on ministry, one of them, uh, people on that committee asked her, like, do you know what you're getting yourself into with this? You're going to be in a fishbowl. Your husband's going to be working a lot more than he is now. When people are upset with him, they're going to complain to you. Um, you know, you're going to be within turmoil and hear, see problems and love your husband and be torn in these different directions. And she was basically like, no, I know that. I've seen what's happened before, and I feel called to be a priest's wife. Yeah, that's wonderfully put. I appreciate that. So I just ask you for a little bit of advice here in, in, in the last few minutes we have. Obviously, calling is not limited to, to the church or to clergy. Everybody, I believe, has a calling in life or can have a calling in life if they go through the process of discernment. Do you have advice for those who are looking for a period of discernment or looking for a calling and are just coming up a little short or not quite finding or hearing what they want to hear? Yeah, um, I guess the three things that, that really did work for me that I've, I've mentioned several times is one, spend a lot of time in prayer. Spend time with God, talking to him, being silent so you can hear back from him. When needed, yell at him. Um, I, uh, as my old pastor said, you know, if you're angry with God, you can tell him that. He's a big boy. He can take it. And, and I think that's right. And as you read through the Psalms in particular, you see great examples of that where there's lots of frustration and where are you, God? And why won't you answer my my cries and my calls and my pleas? Um, so number one is I would say spend time in prayer and be specific with it. You know, what type of, say, sign are you looking for? What types of things do you have on the table? Um, you know, am I called to job A, job B, job C, um, or university? Or am I called to get married? Or should we have another kid? Or should we move across the country? You know, being specific about what the need is what, when you ask and be ready to listen. Two, I am. Um, I would say seek the advice of people wiser than you, and so those that you've seen who've listened to the the voice of God and have seen it in their life, ask them what they heard. You know, have this type of conversation with them. How did they know it was the voice of God and not something else? Uh, what were the the marks there? Three, journaling as much as I hate doing it did in fact work. Um, so writing those things down and being honest with your feelings. I don't feel called to this. Um, and put that down and then come back in six months and see if you've changed your mind on that. That could be very um, insightful and indicative. And also in doing the journaling process, um, you might see things that look like mere coincidences that when you've seen them written down, it, there's no way it, it could have been otherwise. You know, the, the example of me getting the acceptance letter after I'd made a commitment to the church, is I can't change my mind with the church. I already committed to that but being able to reinterpret it in that way. Um, and I've seen Ed do that with, with lots of things. Um, of course, spending time in scripture, I think is incredibly important. And you'll see people, whether it's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Moses, Jesus himself, who hear the word of God and follow it, um, can be rather inspiring and insightful. Um, and I forget who I read this from, but everybody wants to know what the will of God is for their life. And somebody put it out there and said, you know, there's really kind of two, two aspects of God's will. 
there's the will that we don't know. Like, what's the purpose of the world? Where am I going to be in 20 years? Uh, when is the world going to end? Um, why did God allow such and such to happen? We don't know those things. You know, he hasn't revealed that stuff to us. So there's a certain amount where it's not worth worrying about. You know, that's in God's hands. We can leave it there. The other aspect is the will of God that he has revealed. And to some degree, this is true for all of us. And I would say the two big things are exactly what Jesus says are the greatest commandments, to love God and love others. So in whatever decisions we're trying to make or wherever we're trying to discern the will of God or his calling for our life, a great question to ask is, if I go in this direction, is it going to help me love God better? And is it going to help me love other people better? And if I go in this direction, is it not? Then more than likely, the call is to go in the direction where you're more inspired, encouraged, and enabled to love God and love other people better. Thank you again to Father B.J. Burricker for joining me this week. I appreciated his honesty and openness about his calling, the relationships in his life, and for humoring me as we even got to have a little fun with some lesser-known characters in the Bible. I hope you'll join me again next week as we go outside the All Saints family and speak with Father Chris Robinson, a Catholic priest in Chicago, Illinois. Until then, be safe and have a great week. God bless. Thank you.